In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do that which is not right and proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they were gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only did the same, but they gave a hearty approval of those who practiced them. Let's ask God's word. Let's ask God to allow his word to be our message and his Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are holy. And I am a sinner. And it is only through your righteousness that I stand cleansed from my sin. Lord, nothing I can say will ever change a single person's heart and mind. But your word, O oh God, is the power unto salvation. May your gospel pierce our hearts. May your words transform our lives. May they renew our mind so that we are able to test and approve what is good and pleasing to you? And start with me. Father, we love you. May your Holy Spirit touch our, our ears, our eyes, and may your powerful word that remains unchanged transform us into the image and likeness of your Son. I confess my sins in front of these people, for they are many. Wash my feet, Lord. And I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. amen. This is one of the grimmest passages in the New Testament. Three times in this section we read the words, God gave them over. Three times He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. It's called judicial abandonment. We must remember that last week we looked at how God reveals Himself in two different ways. First, He reveals Himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is His righteousness. He also reveals Himself through wrath that is both stored up and presently is being poured out on mankind through moral deterioration of society. We find that in verse 18. 
It is of vital importance to remember that moral deterioration that happens in our lives is evidence of God's wrath in our lives. And it is not static. It grows. It increasingly deteriorates in our lives as greater and greater evil. Allow me to explain through a big picture before we land into this text. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 8 and then repeated in Hebrews chapter 2 that man was made a little lower than the angels. Now I love this illustration because I see myself in this illustration and maybe you can see yourself as well. He said that God made man a little lower than the angels. How many years, I don't know about you, but sometimes I ask myself, what exactly does that mean? That I didn't get wings and I can't fly and I don't know how to naturally play the harp? What does this mean? that I made a little lower than the angels. It has great meaning to the application of this text in that our sanctification, which is God's righteousness being revealed in our lives, and our deterioration, which is God's wrath being revealed in our lives, that we see it here. First of all, angels are spirits who have no body. Animals have no spirit but have a body. Now, man is made a little lower in that he is in between and that we have both body and spirit. Thomas Aquinas pointed out this great truth when he, he said this right here. Let's hit this because I want to remember it. It has always been man's prerogative to move upward towards God who is spirit or downward towards the beast of the fields. And we become that which we focus on the most. So I want to pause right there. What is your primary focus in life? What is your primary focus in life? If you are spending more time on the depraved, deteriorating sin of this world, that is exactly where you will head. If your eyes are on the Lord, we become like Him as we submit to His Word. You see, all sin moves ever downward both individually, nationally, and culturally. Now, a lot of times people say, yeah, but you know what, I, I appreciate the thought, but in the New Testament we deal with a God that is infinite in his grace and infinite in his mercy. R.C. Sproul says, I cringe when I hear about God's infinite grace. You see, it's important to remember that God himself is infinite. And that, however, does not make his mercy infinite. His mercy is infinite, infinite inasmuch as an infinite God decides to bestow it. When the term infinite is used to describe God's mercy rather than God himself, we are not telling the truth because the Bible makes it clear that there is a limit to God's mercy. In fact, in this text alone, three times, he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. We find it in Revelation chapter 22, let those who are unjust remain unjust. So here it is, we have to seek God while he may still be found. Amen, church? It is with this in mind that we come into a very difficult text. For this reason, God gave them over. For what reason? Well, that's verses 18 through 25. When people reject and exchange God for a lie, it results in his wrath being progressively revealed in our lives. And just like when we accept God, his righteousness is progressively revealed in our lives through our sanctification. 
And the first and greatest consequence of God's wrath is being is when a person is being given over towards sexual perversion. We see that in the words there, degrading passions. Now, I want to be clear, degrading passions would include all kind of sexual sin as it relates to the Word of God, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual sin. However, here, while Paul brings up all sexual sin, he moves to focus in on the sin of homosexuality in detail compared to the complete list in the text. In fact, Paul spends ten times more energy and literary real estate on this subject than all other 21 sins that are about to rapidly follow. You see it here in the text. For their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males committing shameful acts. Why does Paul Paul spend so much time here? Why does Paul spend so much time here? I think the answer is sitting right before us, and it's sitting right before us two times in a row that they exchanged natural relations and natural relations. Remember when the Holy Spirit wrote in verses 18 through 25 that moral deterioration is not static. It moves ever downward, hence the words degrading passions. It is for this reason that Paul unpacks sexual sin, homosexual sin, because it is an unnatural deterioration of God's design for sex. Now, let me be clear, young people, middle-aged people, and let's face it, old people, if you are engaged in heterosexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage, you are engaging in a perversion of God's sexual design for man and women. Amen, church? That is his design. So if you're going to slide into bed with someone who is not your spouse, you are already degrading and deteriorating morally. And we are not exempt from this passage. It is with this in mind that we have to teach what is next. Paul is clear. So we will be clear. And I want to do this lovingly. Homosexual sin is an offense to God. For we not only sin against the body, we do that heterosexually as well, but we also sin against the order of nature as God has created it. We see this not only in the language, but we see it within the individual words that Paul chooses. Paul selects very unusual Greek words here. Have you ever said to your, your, um, your kids, listen to my words carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I think we've all been there. Paul uses the words uh, woman here, and he uses the word men here, and he uses very unusual Greek words here. Paul did not use the common Koine Greek word for women here. He didn't say, hey, women, and didn't use the Greek word gune, which is just a general term for womanhood in, in really any context. Nor did he use the common word for man, anair. He used the words male and female in this text. Why did Paul become so biologically refined in his grammar here? Why male? Why female? 
Paul is drawing from the creation account of Genesis, which uses the same words that God created in his image, male and female. Douglas makes this very clear. These words emphasize the sexual distinctiveness of male and female. The distinctiveness, your gender, your sex, my gender, my sex, is a sacred thing that cannot be changed in the eyes of God. This passage speaks into another deterioration of moral decline, which is transgenderism. Gender is not fluid. Gender is not many. But rather it is male and it is female. To seek a life outside of God's sacred design is to, Romans 18 through 25, reject God and His order as He has revealed Himself. It is a sacred identity. Now, in love, some who try to hold to some form of scriptural authority yet to make room for such sin that we like, do so through different hermeneutical and cultural arguments. And I'm going to spend a little time unpacking those arguments for you. The first one is, Paul's a victim of an underdeveloped ancient culture. Paul doesn't get it. Paul's in an ancient culture where this was not acceptable, and he was being influenced by that. Now, I want to pull this up. Some argue Paul's a victim of an underdeveloped culture. This view, however, is seen through the lens of recent westernized culture rather than Paul's culture in 57 AD. Such an approach to excusing sexual perversion in the Word of God is at best short-sighted or purposefully ignorant. When Paul wrote this in Corinth, he sent, by the way, when he wrote this, he was in Corinth, and that, which is not, by the way, a, a bastion of moral conservatism, all right? And then he sent it to Rome, which was even more so not a bastion of moral conservatism. Both cultures not only embraced homosexuality, but they considered homosexuality culturally advanced in a human being's life. Greek culture taught that such an expression of love was the purest and highest forms of love. So much so that 14 out of 15 emperors of Rome were homosexuals when they began their empire. So the idea that Paul is a prisoner of some archaic culture is patently false. Also, found within the Word of God... Sexual perversion, especially within homosexuality, is universally condemned in every instance in both Old Testament and New Testament passages as a serious sin. There is never a loophole in it. Some argue that Jesus never taught against homosexuality and therefore allows some movement within the subject. Young people and everyone, write this down. It is a vital apologetic to those who are in the church who seek to call sin good. Who seek to call sin good in the name of Jesus. The Word of God makes it very clear. Woe to those who call evil good. 
Jesus addressed all sexual sin when he ministered on this earth, including that of homosexuality, bisexuality, and heterosexuality. He did so in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. In fact, he dedicates a lot of real estate towards it. The reason God thinks sexual sin is important is because he thinks you are important. When he speaks about marriage between a male and a female, by the way, the same words Paul uses here, male and female. By the way, the same words found in Genesis, male and female. The only ordained area of sexual intimacy that God sanctions is in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. What God has joined together, let no man separate. This isn't some passive remark on on homosexuality and divorce. It goes all the way back to a supercultural concept found in the Garden of Eden. God is the author of marriage. God is the author of sex. God is the author of gender, not us. Man does not have the authority to break apart God's design as though it's some sort of purchased Lego experience. Jesus' silence. The idea that Jesus being silent on an argument also falls apart. One cannot separate the Trinity. You cannot separate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was present at Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained down judgment on all forms of sexual immorality. Jesus was present when the Holy Spirit wrote this text that we study today. Unless we're going to argue that Jesus disagrees with his Father and is in conflict with his Holy Spirit. Also, you cannot separate the teaching of Jesus from the apostles. Paul here, for they are the authoritative teaching that is of and from Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 10, John chapter 14, speaking to this clearly and many others as well. However, if one is going to claim that deficient teaching of homosexuality from the lips of Jesus somehow permits the act, it is important to understand that Jesus never spoke against pedophilia either, which is rampant in Greek culture. What then shall we do with Jesus' silence on such a horrendous topic? If one is to call pedophilia immoral based on Jesus' silence, such a person now stands in the very place by which he or she condemns Christianity or traditional marriage. The logic eats itself. Some argue that Paul was only arguing against ritual homosexuality and the prostitution and the temple worship of Aphrodite that was found in Corinth. Corinth had a huge temple in, in there, dedicated to the goddess Adaph- uh, Epaphrodite. I want to make sure I say that right. And there were steps going up to it. And part of the act of worship was to engage in sexual immorality at the temple as an act of worship, both straight and gay. And some will say, well, that's what Paul is addressing. Paul's writing to Rome. They argue that sexual sin is okay between consenting adults if it is not done in the form of pagan worship in the temple. Well, that is a slippery slope for us to stand on hermeneutically. 
because that would mean the list of 20 thing, 21 things to follow would also be morally acceptable if it was not done in the context of pagan worship, which means we could redeem murder, malice, hating God, and inventors of evil as long as we are not doing as an act of worship. That is a tough role to pull there. Also for a person to claim the Bible affirms sexual perversion, both hetero and homosexual that person must also be ready to affirm the next 21 sins Paul mentions in the following verses. Some argue that Paul is not condemning all forms of homosexuality, but rather just unnatural homosexuality or forced sexuality that many slave owners would push their servant boys into in order to pay debt or to make money, i.e., the words exchange natural relations, Their argument is that it's only speaking against same-sex activity that is practiced by those who are heterosexual in nature. It's unnatural to the heterosexual. Therefore, that is sinful. Adding to this argument, they say Paul has an underdeveloped scientific knowledge of sexuality. And that today's cultural understanding of sexuality, as it evolves, so, so should the church's interpretation and stand. In short, they say, we know more about sexuality than Paul did in 57 AD. And to that, I agree. I can't really argue that. I'm sure we do know a lot more about the areas of sexuality than Paul did then. But as Bishop Calvin Robinson responds, maybe so. But are we really going to suggest that God knows less than we do now? All Scripture is God-breathed. This argument exalts human experience over the authority of Scripture, making Scripture void, powerless, and human emotion and experience now becomes canon. We would have to abandon in such an argument the omniscience of God in order to hold such a view, and in doing so, we must abandon God Himself. So then we move to the final argument, which is more of a dismissal than a proof, but it makes for a, and I mean this, I'm genuinely trying to mean this with a, a sense of humor but respect, which makes for a good bumper sticker. Love is love. You guys hear this all the time, and so do you. Love is love. This offers no argument or content. In love, it is like saying bricks are bricks. But all not all bricks are equal. I am not going to build with styrofoam bricks over brick and mortar. However, for the sake of argument, let's concede the point and agree that indeed love is love. Okay, love is love. We have another problem Even then, we do not define, nor do we set the terms of love. God does. He defines love, not us. Those who claim love is love also open the door to unimaginable deterioration of sin. Who then is man to judge the love between an adult and a minor? If love is love, then what of polygamy, what of 
polyamory? What of pedophilia? The world at present gets filled with rage when we bring up such large, uh, 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 gets filled with rage when such rational arguments are presented. But not only are they intellectually consistent, it is the inevitable fruit of those who claim love is love outside of what God has determined. And by the way, don't take my word for it. Just last week, just last week, okay, the United Nations publicized a report that opens the door to the decriminalization of sexual relations with minors. This is a quote from the United Nations International Commission of Jurists. Sexual conduct involving persons below the domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may in fact be consensual if not in law. Let us remember that sin is ever deteriorating. Plus, if we are going to make a connection here, if we are going to make a connection, we are making a faulty one between love and the act of sex. They are not the same things. Love is not sex, and sex is not love. Just because I love someone or something does not make it morally acceptable in the eyes of God to have sex with him, her, or it. Additionally, Paul is condemning the act as unnatural. You find that in the words, the shameful acts. To be tempted or struggle or be attracted to the same sex is not synonymous with, with engaging in the act. They are not one and the same any more than it is for me to be attracted to someone and choose not to engage in sex outside of marriage. Finally, God offers a warning for such who reject his natural order and engage in sexual perversion. And now we come back to the whole world of sexual perversion, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. I wanted to skip this. Called up one of my gay friends this week, and I said, I love you. You mean the world to me. Sometimes he tunes in, hey, buddy. <laughs> but I have to teach what is next, or I have no intellectual integrity, and I am nothing but an empty sock. So it is in love that we unpack what is next. What is due penalty? Well, let us remember the context, right? We don't get to make things up. When people assume, when people suppress the truth of God and act against His ordained order, He gives them due penalty. Where? In their persons. When? Now. Do. In their body. Now. They receive a penalty. Kenneth Weiss, the good old Lutheran from the 1940s summarizes this best when he says this. The due penalty is the vicious effects upon the body that such sin brings. According to just about every research place I could find, and by the way, I purposely stayed away from all Christian or religious sources. Everything you're about to hear comes from secular places. Sexual perversion brings a penalty to and in the body. The lifespan of a sexually promiscuous person is shortened by 20 to 30 years. 
This is found within the National Library of Medicine, the NCBI, and the all-powerful omniscient CDC. And let me be clear. I mourn this. It's heartbreaking. It makes me weep for many whom I love. And because I love them, I want them to live long and full lives of God's pleasure. Also, according to the peer-reviewed Medical Journal of News Today, such a lifestyle increases hepatitis B, C, liver cancer, HPV, cervical cancer, mouth cancer, prostate cancer, and many other forms of, and I want to say this gently, intimate forms of cancer. God has an ordained order, and there is a due penalty for rejecting it. Some say that such is hate or bigotry or homophobic. I am none or neither of those. Some say that the church should be inclusive, and here's a point I agree. We should be inclusive, we should be loving. But saying this while blinking at sin is nothing more than a virtue signal from churches that seek to appear, appear good rather than be good. The church should be inclusive. Jesus spent time with tax collectors. He spent time with prostitutes, many of which would have been hetero and homosexual. He spent time with prostitutes. He even spent time with, and I may add, a Baptist minister from Grand Rapids. Jesus spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but let us be clear. It is they who went away changed, not Jesus. We live in a culture that wants us to meet with Jesus, and Jesus changes, not us. They went away changed, not Jesus. Christian, you should know and love all people, just like Jesus. Such individuals are not our enemies but rather objects of our love, our compassion, our value. Even if we are attacked for following the Word of God, our response is not to strike back. Our response is not to call names. Our response is not to be angry. Our response, and affirm it with an amen if you can, our response is love. We can love that which we disagree with. To the world I say, can you? Allow me to give you some good news too. Sexual perversion is not a disease. Can I get an amen? Sexual perversion, all, all of us would die of it. Sexual perversion is not a disease. Rather, it is a sin, which means there is hope, and that hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is repentance and faith in his name that can wash away all sin and clothe us spotless in his righteousness. And it is here that Paul turns his attention to additional ways people reject God and in doing so fall under his progressively revealed wrath. Up until now, many of us in this room may be silently congratulating ourselves on our sinlessness. I've never been on the steps of the temple of Aphrodite. Yes, you have. So have I. 
But sexual sin is only one sin Paul describes in this section. Now some may accuse me of spending more time on sexual sin than the rest of this list here and conclude this shows my bias. And my answer to that is rather simple. I didn't. Paul did. Be mad at Paul. Let me say this. Be mad at Paul. Paul took sexual perversion out of the other 21-ish, depending on how you count them. He pulled them out of the group. And treated sexual perversion separately. And he dedicated ten times the amount of time on it. My sermon is in line with his use of literary real estate. What Paul now rattles off is a long list for one primary reason. For this list, I'll hear this. I don't remember where I read this. I want to say sprawl. Could have been someone else. I don't know. So add to another list, all right? For one primary reason. Now, I love this. For this list is enough to stop any mouth and convict every conscience from being boastful and self-righteous. If anyone in the church can get through this list and not see themselves, you then, good sir and ma'am, are a psychopath. (laughs) I love that. Raise your hand if you can see yourself in this list. I call that Monday. All have come short of the glory of God. This list here is a general and wide-ranging depiction of moral deterioration. Most of these are self-explanatory, but I'd like to touch on the summary of them. But before we look at let's remember that moral deterioration is not static. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper we find it in Romans 23, Romans 26, and, and Romans 30 of chapter 1. In fact, it says here, we're good at inventing evil. It's almost like we unpack our total depravity at times, and we get done with it, and we're like, there's got to be more stuff we can do to reject God, so we just invent things. How many here look around at our culture and say, we are beginning to invent things? Anyone at all? Can you see it in the mirror? Notice what is listed at the bottom of the moral barrel of deterioration. Those who approve of those who practice them. That is the bottom of the barrel. It is the rock bottom of depravity when one heartily applauds those who give themselves to sin. Has the American church applauded sin? What is the answer? This is the bottom of the barrel where there's nothing left and we're just scraping the the tar on the bottom in between our fingernails and we go, you go world. Be careful what you are an advocate for. We reach the bottom of depravity when we heartily applaud those who give themselves to sin. Those who practice immorality are guilty, but those who applaud immorality are seen as even more wretched. Approving sin only pushes someone away from God. It is sin that separates us from God. Amen, church? 
including gossip and slander and that whole list, including disobeying your parents. I got $100 to throw that in again, all right? I'm just joking. Approving sin pushes someone away from God. Hear this. There could be no more unloving act than this. In fact, it is hateful. Such a person who is seeking to be allies with the world rather than restored with God. The most loving thing a person can do to help someone find redemption from God's wrath to his love. Not applaud the object of God's wrath in the name of love. One can denounce sin while loving the sinner. And this is huge. The church does not have the authority to bless sin. I want to close with a reminder. Paul's writing to a church. Why go through such a dim list to a church? Because it is an ever-darkening world. Because in an ever-darkening world, the church is to be a light in that world. The church is to be an example of the gospel, a living example of what the gospel produces in a person's life. The church should be moving away from the beasts of the field and towards the spiritual heart of God because we have been created a little lower than the angels. My friends, this is not done by reflecting the world's depravity but by reflecting God's purity. Imagine if the world looked in on a church and saw the opposite of this list. What if the world looked in and saw a church that, that rewrote this list? What would it look like and what would it do for our effectiveness? Well, that's what I did. I rewrote this passage to be the opposite of what we just read. Now keep your eyes on the apple as we read the text. Therefore, God gave the church over to pure and wholesome lives, glorifying God in the most intimate relationship so that everyone received in their own bodies the due reward of their fidelity. And we saw fit to acknowledge God in everything God gave us up to even more sound minds filled with righteousness and goodness and generosity and kindness and full of selflessness and life and healing and openness and thoughtfulness. We were gentle in our speech, always encouraging. We were lovers of God, respectful, humble. We tried to find new ways to do good. We were obedient to authority understanding we were trustworthy, we were loving, we were merciful, we were heartily applauding all those who did the same thing. Is this not what the testimony of the church should be? Amen? The gospel is offensive, but our lives and our conduct should be so attractive that people could not deny that God's way is undeniably best and produces abundant life. Why would the world see the need for God if those who claim him look no different? We scratched selfishly some itches in our hearts today. 
Paul is talking primarily to Gentile believers here. The Jewish believers in the church who just arrived represent high moral ground. They never once went to a movie, played cards, or danced. You see a line I'm drawing there? High moral ground, these Jewish believers. They would have been puffing their chests out with pride. After all, as Jewish people, very rarely did they engage in these things. Much of the conservative church thinks this way today. I'm better than you. Paul's about to turn on his heel in chapter 2. And he's going to look at every moral conservative and say to them, and he's going to say to us, because we are Rome. Despite all your high moral ground and all the bubble wrap that you surround the Word of God with and call it Christianity, despite all your high moral ground, you are just as broken as the next person. And we need the gospel too. The church, we need the gospel every day and twice on Sunday. To the church. Young man, young woman, adult, if you are engaged in sexual perversion, repent. If your life doesn't look like the new list, repent. Because our number one job, our number one calling, is not to be attractive out there, but be attractive to him who is coming again. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing alone. It is your blessing that we seek. We love you. You are our groom. Everything else is adultery. Draw us to you. Purify us. We love you. It's in Christ's name I ask this. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.